0: All right, you guys, welcome to the show. How's it going? I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. And i uh, got a good show lined up for you today. Daniel L. Davis is going to be on the show. Uh, I believe he was a lieutenant colonel in the army. Is that right? Have it here somewhere. Anyway, um, the thing about him, yeah, uh, lieutenant colonel in the army. You might remember Gareth Porter wrote about him a few years ago. I could have swore that I'd interviewed him. I really just, I really thought I had interviewed him. But I guess not. But anyway, he told a really interesting story about his time in Afghanistan. And he's uh, been writing now at the National Interest. And we've been running some of his stuff on antiwar.com because it's pretty good. So he'll be on to talk, I think, primarily about Afghanistan, although we might jump around a little bit. Uh, also, Ira Chernus is going to be back on the show. And I don't know how long it's been since I've interviewed him, but uh, he writes great stuff from time to time for Tom Dispatch. And I really liked this one, man, that he wrote. Is It's called The Peace Movement's War Story. Uh, America's New Vietnam in the Middle East. And, uh, well, I don't want to talk too much about it, but I'll just let you know that I thought it was really great. Ran at TomDispatch.com, and then, of course, we ran it at Antiwar.com as well, the peace movement's war story. And, in fact, that's uh, one of the highlights today on Antiwar.com if you go look in the viewpoint section there. And then uh, John Pfeffer is going to be on. And, you know, his interview might be a little bit redundant with uh, Chernus, but I don't care. Pfeffer's article is Life in the Gray Zone about uh, the American War Party and the terrorist war Parties. Uh, common enemy, so-called moderate Muslims, and those of us non-Muslims who are perfectly happy to live near them and interact with them. This has got to stop, according to all of the very worst people on Earth. According to John Pfeffer, so we're going to talk with him about that. But right now is when I gloat and say, "I told you so," Rand, you idiot. Rand Paul has failed. He's now so worried about holding on to his Senate seat, he has finally dropped out of the presidential race after getting creamed in Iowa. Oh, there's going to be a big surprise in Iowa. You just wait. We're going to turn out all the university students and everything. Well, you know, I think in 2008 and 12, the students were on break still during the um, Iowa caucuses or on some kind of break. I don't know. What? Not Christmas break still. Whatever. For whatever reason, they weren't even in town. So Ron's numbers would have been much higher if the college kids had been at college in time for the Iowa caucuses uh, back in 8 and 12. Well, Rand had them at college, not home on break. And he still could only turn out, I think, less than a quarter of the number of voters who turned out for his father in 2012. And then, so thank God he quit, right? Right. I mean, he might as well, I, it probably was a coin flip, whether to come out for nuking Tehran. Um, but, uh, at least he quit. So that's good. And it proves that I was right. That what was wrong with Ron Paul wasn't that he was too libertarian and not conservative enough. The only thing that was wrong with Ron Paul was, He was libertarianism's best kept secret in America until 2007 when he ran for president, started running for president. And he was already old by then. No offense. I love the guy. I'm just saying, you know, he was 72 or whatever. Imagine if he'd had the name recognition that he had in 08 and 12 back in 1988. And he still couldn't have won. But, you know, being a young man with that level of fame would have really helped. Uh, but once the American people got a chance to meet Ron Paul, to see Ron Paul, to learn his name and find out, wow, there really is one decent man in the House of Representatives, huh? You don't say. As soon as they found, found that out, he went from zero to 700 miles an hour. I know I always change how many miles an hour it is. I'm not sure you know, where I like to settle in my analogy to the Ron Paul race car. But anyway, uh, he took off. He grew libertarianism by 7,000% or something, right? Some incredible number. All around the world too, right? Ron Paul meetup groups. Hey, let's all sit around and read Mises to each other, uh, at meetup groups all over the planet Earth because of Ron. In 2008 and 2012, he ran the two greatest speaking tours on behalf of peace and liberty in the history of mankind. He did more for the Enlightenment era. Of the 16 and 1700s than John Locke or Thomas Jefferson. Um, what, what Ron did was change the world. And all he had to do was just get out there and be honest. Tell them the truth, whether it's scandalous or not. Get up there, stand for freedom, pick on power. They deserve it. And he did so much for freedom and so much for spreading an understanding of the benefits of freedom uh, for all of society, not just, you know, for our own wills. Because everybody likes to go, oh, yeah, well, I believe in freedom, kind of, but not when it's bad for society. Yeah, it's not. And that was what Rand, uh, what Ron taught and did so great at. Now, what did Ron think? Rand thought now, what was holding Ron back was he was too libertarian, right? Not that he was just a lowly congressman from Texas that no one had ever heard of, that the national media would never pay any attention to. But he was um, just too ideological and Ren, and I guess he's known this his whole life, right? That if only you could dress up some of that libertarianism in a bunch of sellout, wishy-washy, rhino-ish, centrist conservatism with no real definition and try to blend it into Republican party politics. Well, that's the way forward for sure. And I warned, and you can go back. Well, I guess my old Facebook page is gone, but anyway. Those of you who know me know that I've been saying since 2009, he's trying to pander and flip-flop and water down and be everything to everyone, and instead he's going to be nothing to nobody. And that's exactly what happened. You know, Ron Paul had this pure libertarian standpoint that can appeal to everyone except the very worst authoritarians. Everyone else can find something that they like enough about Ron to overlook some of the other stuff, right? I know totals, you know, social welfare state Democrats who were willing to vote for Ron because he was so damn good on the wars. You know, he didn't pander to them. He didn't say, oh, yeah, no, I never said anything about, you know, rolling back the welfare state. He didn't say that. He said, look, we should compromise. I think we should shore up the welfare state by abolishing the warfare state. And But yes, we should allow young people at least a chance to opt out of Social Security and start phasing this stuff out. We just can't afford it. Freedom works anyway. Blah, 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 blah. Went on arguing against the welfare state. So he was willing to compromise on issues, but not on principles. And the issues he was willing to compromise was medical care for grandma, not slaughtering Arabs. You see the difference there? And yes, it is... It's a crime to rob someone in order to pay for someone else's grandma. Don't get me wrong. I'm against all taxation. It's violence. I'm an anarchist. But I'm just saying. Rand's compromise is, as a matter of principle, no one even knows what his principles are. But his compromises on policies, I mean, show that he's got no principle at all. When he's willing to support staying in Afghanistan, support the drone wars in Pakistan and Yemen, and uh he was good on Libya and regime change in Damascus, but he still wants regime change in Raqqa. He's issued a declaration of war against the Islamic State, and not in a cutesy way like Ron did against Iraq in 2002, where he, on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, issued a declaration of war, but then voted against it and was just trying to call out his fellow congressmen for sloughing off their authority to the president, trying to make them take responsibility for their own actions, which they wouldn't do. Rand actually supported a real declaration of war against the Islamic State, said Obama wasn't doing enough against him. And he failed. He ran as Jeb, and he failed like Jeb. Hey, y'all, Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MastersamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MastersamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MastersamuraiTech.com. I love
1: Bitcoin, but there's just something incredibly satisfying about having real, fine silver in your pocket. That's why commodity discs are so neat. They're one-ounce rounds of fine silver with a QR code on the back. Just grab your smartphone's QR reader, scan the coin, and you'll instantly get the silver spot price in Federal Reserve notes and Bitcoin. And if you donate a 100 bucks to The Scott Horton Show, he'll send you one. Learn more at Facebook.com slash
0: CommodityDiscs. CommodityDiscs.com. All right, guys. Welcome back. By the way, yeah, I'm sorry I missed the show yesterday. I had computer problems like crazy. And I'm real sorry about the server and the the archives and everything. You know, we even got the server back up, but then the permissions all got reset. I can't upload anything. It's a disaster, and I... Anyway, I'm sort of, kind of, pseudo-someday working on it, I hope. Maybe. Sorry that I know that's not good enough, but it is what it is. It's scotthorton.org sometimes. Scott Horton.org. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. And I'm sorry, I went off on a tangent about the whole thing about the pandering and the not. Rand was trying to pander and please everyone. But everyone, how about anyone, can see through that. Even the dumbest dumbass can tell when all you're doing is saying whatever it is you think he wants to hear. And that's what Rand tried to do to everyone. To the born-agains, to the, you know, the banker types. Did you see this thing about the Federal Reserve? I want to make the Federal Reserve more effective. More effective at expanding bank credit, creating massive artificial booms that lead to very real, horrible busts that dislocate the entire economy so they can make the wars seem free. You want to make that more effective? Then he went and met with Sheldon Adelson, and you know what? This is a tiny bit of assumption, and I think you can tell which part is the the assumption, but it's pretty damn clear what happened. He went and met with Sheldon Adelson and promised to be bad on the Iran deal if Sheldon Adelson would promise not to bankroll a big stop-rand campaign. And what an idiot! What could be better for Rand Paul than to have Sheldon Adelson bankrolling a massive Stop Rand Paul campaign? That is the, he should have gone in there and told Sheldon Adelson to, you know, come over here and kiss my ass, old man. You can't bring me down. I dare you to try. What a great campaign to run. I'm the only Republican who is actually Uh, you know, conversant with the facts of the Iran nuclear issue and deal. I'm the only one who's not a damn liar, and I'm the only one who's not backed by a billionaire agent of a foreign power who's trying to sabotage this deal. Instead, he went to some restaurant in New Jersey or something, like some episode of The Sopranos, and he's the one who bent down to kiss Sheldon Adelson's ass And promise him to be bad on the Iran deal. And then how did he justify it to you and me? Not, well, I had to make a deal to please Sheldon Adelson. Instead, he lied. He lied. He told outright, easily disproven, ridiculous lies about what the Iran deal said. About what the Ayatollah said about the Iran deal. About everything to try to justify his betrayal. And who did this impress besides Sheldon Adelson? Did Bill Kristol then say, oh, maybe Rand ain't so bad after all. Come on, neocons. Nope. All he did was betray anyone who ever actually wanted to support him. Everyone who was bending over backwards to look for excuses to come up with, God, for Christ's sake, he's Ron Paul's son. There's got to be a secret Ron in there somewhere, man. Nope. And how much mileage did he get with the born and with Wall Street, and with the war party, with the Israelis? Zero, nada, nothing. Failure. Oh, yeah, no, that was so hard to predict. That's just all I've been saying for six years straight. You know, just because they put him on the front of Newsweek or Time and said, oh, the most interesting man in politics, all of a sudden Rand forgot everything he ever knew about what country he lives in. Hey, wow, look, everybody says here I have a real chance at the nomination and the presidency. You stupid idiot. Oh, yeah, I guess, you know, I haven't learned anything since fourth grade social studies class either. This isn't an evil empire. This isn't an oligarchy run by banks and arms dealers and agribusiness and the Israelis. Oh, no, this is a democracy where anyone can become president, even the son of Ron, if only he panders enough. What a joke. What an idiot. Instead, if he had just had as his mission... I'm going to run the badassest failing run for president anyone's ever run. I'm going to undermine the establishment's narrative on Iraq, Iran, Syria, Afghanistan, all of the entire terror war. I'm going to tell them the truth about Iran's nuclear program. I'm going to tell him the truth about the occupation of Palestine, which I guess Ron was never that hardcore about uh, preaching the truth on that. But he always said, uh, you know, America should stop arming and supporting Israel. And he privately would say, or he would say publicly, but not as like a real political thing. Uh, he would uh, criticize Israeli policy, especially toward Gaza. But anyway, if, um, if Rand had just gone out there and said, let me tell you about the F-35, okay? Here is a, a parable about the corruption of the biggest government in the history of the world, the USA, and our world empire that must be abolished. Gather around, people. Uh, man, he could have changed the world, right? He could have been young Ron Paul in the Senate. Running for, you know, a third presidential run in a row on the same message, only more eloquent and more willing to scrap with the personalities. I mean, cause he will tangle with them on some things, right? Just not the important things. Instead, he abandoned every good part of his father's message and adopted just, I don't know what, the Jeb plan. Remember in the first debate, the very first debate, the very first question was raise your hand if you promise not to run as a third-party candidate, which is what they always try to use against his dad, right? They wouldn't ask him about Iraq. They'd always try to get him on, oh, are you loyal enough to the Republican Party? That was the first question, maybe it was the second debate. I think it was the first debate. First question, the first debate. And everybody raised their hand except Trump. And what did Rand do? He goes, teacher, teacher, I'm telling. Donald Trump isn't loyal enough to the Republican Party leadership. We all are willing to compromise our principle and support any of our opponents, no matter how much we pretend to oppose them now. But Donald Trump won't make the same vow? Why, that's terrible. Rand said. And on, you know, I told you this, the, the nightly show um, on on the comedy channel, one of the guests on there, she called him Ron. That's how unfamiliar she was with him. She was like, who's that Ran- Ron Paul Rand? And they're like, Rand. Oh, yeah, Rand Paul. He just looked like a little tattletale up there. That's what she said. She was someone who was not familiar. She was just going with her little impression or, her, her, you know, initial impression. Of Rand. He just looked like a little tattletale up there saying, Oh, teacher, Trump is not doing right and he's breaking the rules. (laughs) What a disgrace. When the obvious tactic would be to say, Trump is a New York billionaire. I may be a senator, but my last name is Paul. You want an outsider? I'm your outsider. But no, he's running as Mitch McConnell. And in fact, here he is in the Hill. Rand Paul, Mitch McConnell, are you against army cuts in Kentucky? And go read all the quotes in here about how bad we need them. According to RandPaulInTheHill.com right now. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism vs. Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism vs. Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still. If you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. ScottHorton.org is my website most of the time when it's working. Live here on the Liberty Radio Network from noon to 2 Eastern. And now on with the interviews. First up is Daniel Davis, a former lieutenant colonel in the Army, and uh, now he's writing at the NationalInterest.org uh, with Paul Pillar and some of those other guys over there. Um this one is called Throwing More U.S. Troops at Afghanistan Isn't the Answer. Welcome to the show, Daniel. How are you? I'm
2: doing really well. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, very happy to have you here. And I could have sworn that I'd interviewed you before, but I guess I was just thinking of uh, what Gareth Porter had written up about you back when. Man, I could have oh, sworn yeah, I'd interviewed yeah. you. But anyway, He's so you had this really interesting story. And I guess maybe I'm just thinking about my interview of Gareth on this subject, too. But, um, your thing was you were some kind of supply officer in Afghanistan, which gave you the ability to travel all over all the different aspects and theaters of that war right at the height of the surge, which gave you a, a real perspective on that war that was lacking basically anywhere else at the time. Is that right? Uh,
2: pretty close. I wasn't a supply officer. I was actually uh, a, an acquisition officer for building equipment to uh, units all over the country. So that's why I was able to go. But I did see all those things you just mentioned. I guess
0: I don't understand the difference between those two things. Okay. Acquisitions or supplies or whatever, yeah. You were a clinger. I get it. I mean, not in the dress, though. (laughs) You were Radar O'Reilly. And so, okay, but so this this gave you the perspective on the war. And if I remember right, what you said was, hey, everybody, this ain't working. And this was in what year now that you Uh, came out? 2012. 2012 that you came out. Okay, so um, I guess if you want, you could start with what was the situation then and, and or now, or if you want to start with now and compare it to then. Things have gotten better or worse in what ways. Obviously, we have uh, many uh, fewer troops uh, in Afghanistan right now compared to then. Um, but I guess if you could just give us a, a general kind of overall assessment of the situation there that you know a listener might need to hear.
2: Yeah, sure, uh, and it is uh, useful to start in 2012. Uh, what I had seen uh, when I was over there was uh, a really down on the ground, uh, firsthand view of, of exactly what was going on with the training of the Afghan forces, you know, with the fight with the Taliban, with what the U.S. forces were doing, and, and all of that, and literally over all the primary fighting uh, locations throughout the country at that time. Uh, that was, of course, at the height of the surge, as you mentioned. Uh, General Petraeus was in charge down there, and and General Petraeus and a number of other senior leaders and several of the two-star generals who were in charge of various regions were routinely telling uh, congressional uh, at congressional testimonies or in media reports, in and, and interviews, etc., that things were on the right path. It, it's a tough fight, but we're making progress, and we're on the right asthma as. Much as Petraeus said on a number of occasions, and when I got there, I was I was encouraged by that because I was uh, obviously we want to succeed at what we're doing, we want to see the war successfully end. But in the course of all my travels around the country, uh, I saw that almost the exact opposite was the case. Not only was it not getting better, it was getting demonstrably worse. Uh, and and the soldiers that I talked to at every single stop all validated, you know, in their area exactly what I saw that it was getting worse. And, and I just, uh, at that time, I just felt the moral obligation to, you know, to tell people what was going on because, you know, all the people knew back in the United States from watching the television or reading, you know, congressional reports or, or other kinds of media is that things were getting better. And they were like, well, all right, what's it's a, we're having to pay a price, but we got to keep supporting it because it's working, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. So people are making decisions based on inaccurate information and, uh, so I wrote those reports. and uh, Well, and now, when it comes to, to
0: back then, when you say it was getting worse, was the surge making it worse or it was just getting worse in spite of the surge? And what exactly does worse mean anyway, just more territory controlled by the Taliban?
2: Yeah, in the in the primary sense of worse, it's that the violence is increasing. Uh, and, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it was made worse by the surge. There was a number of places – uh, specifically where I, I remember this one really poignant experience that has stuck in my mind is that one of the Taliban, uh, regional commanders that we had captured in a certain location, uh, during his interrogation, uh, he got mad at the interrogator, not because, you know, he was trying to milk him for information, but he said, I didn't want to be a Taliban. I had no interest in being a Taliban, but you guys came in and, and, and part of your, uh operations drew more violence into my area and some of my family members were killed and I had an obligation, you know, to try to, to try to protect them. He said, So you drove me into the Taliban. We saw that many places that places that we put troops in where there hadn't been any before had violence sticking up because now then there is there's fights to have where there was no fights before. So yeah, we go over there and we conduct all these operations, we're naturally gonna have more violence and more people who would never have joined the Taliban did. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, now, but on the other hand, obviously that makes sense, right? But then the argument would be, well, we're trying to kill more of them than we make. And if we do make a few more, that's one thing. But what we're doing with this surge is, and this is what Petraeus, I believe, had, you know sold publicly what that we're not going to defeat the Taliban entirely that's impossible but we are going to whoop them so bad that come July 2011 they're going to come whimpering to the table and agree to our terms that was what was supposed to happen here and so would you say that that was always just a fool's errand or that you know maybe if they had done this or that better they could have actually achieved that so-called benchmark
2: no there was no chance it could never have worked it was a fool's errand from the beginning And it wasn't hard to figure out, especially from people who are over there, because you're not taking more people out than you're creating. For every one you take out, you could be creating three. So you're only making the matter worse, no matter how many you kill. because And and there's so many reports and analysis that validate this that um, every time we take somebody out, there is no shortage. There will always be more to replace them than we took out there, and that's exactly what turned out to happen
0: all right and now so what all's changed since 2012
2: well so before or since 2012 of course we had the, the drawdown which started in 2011 and uh, what I guess it was in early 2014 that the alleged combat mission quote came to an end where well, we didn't engage in direct uh, uh, combat with the enemy what happened what was expected was that when we had a smaller number of troops that the violence would also come down because we're not out there to have, uh, you know, conflict with them on a on a daily basis. Because prior to 2020, this surge, that's exactly what we saw. Every time we added troops, the violence added in in, a, in coordination with it. So, as much as we put troops there, there was more violence. So the thought was going to be, we we many had hoped that when the troops went down, so would the violence. Unfortunately, because the surge stirred up so much hatred and animosity and, and built the Taliban up, that now then when the our troop numbers went down, the violence at first stayed the same, and then it started actually increasing because more of the Taliban were out there and fewer of the defenders were out there, and so the violence actually went up.
0: And now, so whatever happened, though, to the government in the box and the brilliant new counterinsurgency strategy that was different from every other counterinsurgency strategy before that had all the most brilliant minds like Petraeus and Flournoy behind it, and they said they're going to change the entire society over there.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that that briefed well, and it did brief well on on American uh, TV networks, but uh it, it that also never had any chance because it, uh, specifically in that one that mccrystal so famously said in in marja that we're going to bring talent or a uh, government in a box and all that well they bring in somebody who's from outside there who has no uh credibility uh or support from the community and tries to impose him and it was absolute disaster because not the taliban but the local people rejected it and rebelled against it and it just absolutely didn't work and that guy ended up being fired and uh, left in disgrace, although it was kind of quiet. Yeah, and uh, after that, uh, you know, we saw that it was discredited. and We at least stopped trying to do that, but it never had any chance. And right, well, I'm sorry, hold it be- right
0: there, Daniel. Uh, everybody, I'm talking with uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel L. Davis. He's writing at the National Interest nationalinterest.org. dot org. Throwing more U.S. troops at Afghanistan isn't the answer. And we'll be back in what three or four. Hey, i will Scott Horton here for Liberty dot me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF Founder and President Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there. ScottHorton.Liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. Hey, Al, Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. If this nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone, we are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at ScottHorton.org or TheWarState.com. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. I'm talking with retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis of the U.S. Army about the disaster in Afghanistan. He's got this uh, really good piece here at the National Interest. Throwing more U.S. troops at Afghanistan isn't the answer, and there's so much to cover here. Um, I guess let me ask you uh, about the deal that Obama signed with Karzai back a few years ago, Daniel, that had America staying in some capacity till 2024. Now, I haven't really heard any coverage of that since the time that it happened. Um, and I wonder what exactly was that deal? Because, you know, I thought that it meant we're leaving troops there to swear to protect the government we've created in Kabul till at least 2024. Is that not correct?
3: Well,
2: it's it's that's kind of the intent, although it was effectively non-binding because, you know, you have more administrations, you have congresses that have to approve or whatever, but it laid the framework out for that. But that's that's the intent that was kind of underneath it, that we would keep some kind of military presence there as long as it took to keep that government uh, in power.
0: And now, is it right that 10,000 guys can, that's what we have there now, and I guess there are a couple thousand more from Europe, uh, can they keep this government in power or are we really if, facing the possibility of a fall of Saigon, rooftop helicopter type moment here?
2: If if all you're interested in literally is keeping the physical government in Kabul uh, alive and, and in power in Kabul, then, then, yeah, you can do that. That number of troops would be sufficient to do that. But that does nothing to protect the country or to make the country a viable entity or, or to increase the, the – uh, Credibility that the government has among the people. See, that's that's the kind of the lost part of all this. If that government doesn't have the, the confidence of the people that they want to follow it, it doesn't make any difference what whether they don't get overrun or not, whether there's a Saigon or not. Um, for example, the government itself is is very much dysfunctional, as you you may know that there was so much uh, corruption in the last presidential election that they had to do something that wasn't even in the Constitution and basically put two guys in charge mm-hmm. with the prime minister and a chief executive, whatever that means. And uh, they don't get along very well. And even now, how, what it's been two years, I guess, since the election, they still don't have a uh, minister of defense. So it, they don't even coordinate their defense policy very well. So it's very dysfunctional.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I said to Ann Jones one time, are we risking a fall of Saigon type moment where the Talibs just walk right into Kabul? And she says, son, the Talibs are in the parliament right now in Kabul. They've already <laughs> marched right in there years ago.
2: Yeah, and they don't have any need to because, I mean, we have basically have sealed Kabul off from the rest of the country anyway because they, they are afraid to go outside. There's reports uh, just this week where there's many of the uh, U.S. staff, don't even travel on the roads in Kabul. They have to go anywhere from helicopter because it's so unsafe, and that's in the capital itself. So the Taliban have effectively quarantined the the government right now, so they don't need to storm it and, you know, lose troops in the process. We've helped them do that on our own. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it seems like at some point they could do maybe even just sort of a soft coup and just kind of consolidate the power that they, I guess, you know, instead of storming into Kabul, they're just walking right in and... And negotiating their way into power, but now, so could never even mind American intervention here. Could any com- or Pakistani or Iranian or Russian or any other intervention in a vacuum? Could the people of Afghanistan ever have a state, or do any of them want to have one, or they would rather just have an area, a country where they do things the way they've always done things with their loya jirgas and this and that, and Kabul can go to hell.
2: <laughs> well. I- Prior to 1979, when this whole, when the, they had the Soviet Union in there and went in for their, uh, their intervention and they had the coup, uh, within Kabul, in the 40 years prior to that, there was, uh, almost complete peace throughout the country. Uh, and they all did live together, all, you know, in in peace and there was no violence that was going on, whatever. But since that got unleashed, and then once the Taliban were having their civil war with the Northern Alliance, then we come in and basically take the side of the Northern Alliance and, and all of the violence that's spiked up since then. The whole generation of people alive right now don't even know anything but violence and war. And they don't want war. No, Nobody wants war. They want to see it ended more than anybody. Mm-hmm. The problem that we have is that we're, there's – because the federal government in Kabul is so weak and corrupt and all the military districts are, are equally corrupt, is that you almost have – De facto, a bunch of fiefdoms running around, whether a warlord or whether an actual government member. And so there's no incentive for anybody to work together. So right now, it's just to answer your direct question, whether it's Pakistan, Russia, China, whoever, because things are so messed up right now, it's going to take a decade or more of concerted effort just to get things calmed down so that they can live in peace again.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like the less foreign intervention, the better, because they have to basically, you know, figure out how much power each of these different groups and tribes and warlords really have, you know, from the bottom up rather than from, you know, distorted by American money and guns and airstrikes and the rest. So wherever we've intervened, we've basically made people bigger than they really are. So wherever we back off, then those prices have to fall back down to their real level again, you know?
2: Well, well put. And, and, of course, the the mechanism that we've injected to do that, it just imagine how many Afghans we have trained and how much weapons we've sent in, how much ammunition. I mean, there's the stuff that we provided has enabled them to have a lot more of these armed conflicts within the different groups within there. So uh, we've made the violence more effective, and, and you're right. It's exactly that's a great way to put it. It's going to have to play itself down now until it gets back to some sort of stasis uh, to where then, you know, they can actually negotiate and and end this thing on their own. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, in the Iraq War, it at least made sense on the surface that, hey, if we're fighting a civil war for the majority to kick the minority Sunni Arabs out of Baghdad, well, we can accomplish that and call that the surge worked, that we won the war for Sadr at the same time we're bombing him. Um, But... In Afghanistan, it was never like that. It's always been a war against the majority who have absolutely refused to go along for 14 years straight. Yeah, and,
2: and they don't see any reason to do so because, you know, we're trying to impose a our form of government or our preference of form of government onto them that doesn't fit what they have ever successfully done. And even though it's not, you know, a, literally a U.S.-style democratic system it's a system that we imposed on them and it, as opposed to the one that they wanted which was a parliamentary system by the way they many of them have been lobbying for that for the full 14 years uh because that's what they want that's what they'll support and instead we impose this presidential system and uh it's just in every way whether politically militarily we just seem to keep it a mess
0: yeah. all right now so how can america ever get out of here because they can't unless they can call it a victory right so we're just going to be here for till 2024 and then 34 and 44?
2: <laughs> well, that's where it's going to take some leadership. Somebody, whether a strong Congress or, or, or a, a new president that's, that understands things and has the courage to lead on this, is, is going to have to change something, or, or we're just going to be stuck in that spiral, which means we'll never accomplish our security goals for the region, and they'll never accomplish their goals for a peaceful survival and a life Um, But we have to do that. It's got to end somehow. It cannot continue on like you just said the 24, 34,
3: 44 and all those.
0: All right. Now, let me ask you this. How many of the commanding officer types and, you know, around uh, in the Afghan theater when you were there ever talked about Alfred, uh, Alfred McKinder? And uh, the world island and we must dominate Central Asia to keep Russia and China out of Central Asia because North America must rule the center of the heartland forever, like in Zbigniew Brzezinski, because that seems like a big part of why America refuses to leave Afghanistan that nobody ever talks about. Uh, it, we we always stay focused on more narrow questions about what's going on in Marja rather, rather than really asking, well, what the hell are we doing there when everybody knows that it can't be won according to the stated goals?
2: Yeah, at least among the military commanders, and this all the way up to two-star generals that I had interaction with, n- none of them had those thoughts in mind. In fact, they didn't have any concern one way or the other what the geopolitical situation was above them. They They were literally just focused on trying to contain their their battle space and especially the lower down you went they just wanted to accomplish their tactical goals keep their guys alive and go home i mean war through a soda lose, straw yeah right? work out
0: mm-hmm. but, but that, now war through a soda straw as robert gates says yeah, right yeah uh-huh. that's but now way. so but what about the big picture i mean do you think that that is what it's about or everybody is just looking at it through a soda straw or what
2: you know i almost wish it was that way because then there would be a uh, you know a a a coherent plan and a thought that, you know, you could actually change to get it in. The problem is, and uh, there's a new report out by the Center for Strategic and International Studies that uh, flatly called it what it is, the U.S. has no strategy. All we do is tactical moves, you know, do we keep 9,000 or do we keep 5,000? No one even talks about what they're going to accomplish It's just we just do these little tactical moves with no thought to what the strategic is. That's my biggest concern, is that we have no strategy. We don't even think on geopolitical levels. And so we just muddle along, and we don't even know what success would ever look like because we don't quantify success.
0: Yeah. Well, and then, you know, as always, God help us if we get people in power who actually think they know what they're doing and know what they want to do. We'll just make everything that much worse. We're better off just muddling through. You know what I mean? Paul Wolfowitz and his men, Richard Pearl, they came to D.C. with a plan in 2000, 2001. They knew exactly what to do, and they ruined everything for everyone. Got the whole 21st century off on the wrong foot for all of mankind. Yeah,
2: I disagree with that.
0: Yeah, and it was because they had a moral foreign policy. No more of this, you know, um, uh, real politic. They care, (laughs) you know?
2: Anyway. Well, that was the surface story anyway. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's what they said. All right, hey, listen, I really appreciate your time on the show, and I'll go ahead and tell you now, some of these quotes are going to end up in my book here before the end of the year. <laughs> I really do well, appreciate it's, it's
2: Daniel. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate
0: it. All right, y'all, that is Daniel L. Davis, former uh, lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army, now writing for the National Interest at nationalinterest.org, and we'll be right back. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for wallstreetwindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at wallstreetwindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. wallstreetwindow.com Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. ScottHorton.org for all the archives. More than 4,000 interviews now going back to 2003. Really? Follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. And let me say real quick that um, a lady named Anna Dooley wrote a real nice thing about the show at Liberty.me. It's called You Should Be Listening to the Scott Horton Show, which you are, so I guess she's not really talking to you, but you might want to read it. And I thought it was real nice. I just wanted to say thanks to her for writing such a nice thing. Um, okay, on to our next guest. It's Ira Chernis. I really like it when Ira Chernis writes things. Uh, this one is called The Peace Movement's War Story. And, um, well, you know how it is with the Tom Dispatch articles. There's always two titles. America's New Vietnam in the Middle East. It ran at TomDispatch.com and also under Tom Engelhart's name at AntiWar.com as well. Welcome back to the show. Ira, how are you doing? Uh, very happy to have you here, and I'm sorry because I forgot to say uh, your things. You are a professor of religious studies at the University of Colorado, Boulder, and author of Mythic America Essays, and that's your website, mythicamerica.us, so. Sorry for neglecting that for a second. Now, I love this whole thing about Vietnam and the anti-war protests. Oh, I guess it's Tom's intro that talks about the anti-war protests in 2003 in February and March, and everybody tried to stop the war there for a minute. Um, but uh, you get right into Vietnam, and, and it actually goes right to – Uh, Something, And I'm sorry, everybody, I've said this on the show before, but one of my very first experiences of learning anything about Vietnam when I was a kid was a friend of mine's mom got really mad and slammed her fist down on the table and said it was a civil war and it was none of our damn business. And her friends had died in the thing, of course. And um, so that, you know, I was born right after it ended, basically. That's my era. But so uh, you take us back to Vietnam and the challenge over the narrative of just exactly what was happening there and how, depending on which narrative you believed in to explain the facts, that almost entirely dictated your point of view of the war. Of course, I've heard it said the exact opposite, that there really was a country in the South that wanted to be free of the evil commies and, and they were overmatched and they needed our help. So anyway, take it from there.
3: That's what I thought. I had the same kind of experience that you did. It was a friend of mine. I was in college at the time, and he said, no, it's a civil war. It took me a little while to figure out that he was right, and it took Americans uh, a few years to figure out that, yes, it was a civil war there. And the point I'm making in this article is that now we're looking at another civil war. The Islamic State is one part of a huge civil war that really is running through the whole world of Islam. You know, In Islam tradition, they call it Dar al-Islam, the home of Islam. That means all the, the lands where Muslims dominate, where Muslims live. And there are many, many different factions fighting with each other. It's not like Vietnam, where there were only really two factions. you got all these factions fighting with each other. My main point is that the Islamic State is not really at war with us, with the United States. They haven't declared war on us. They certainly aren't going to attack us. Even President Obama uh, understands that. Right? They're involved in a Muslim civil war, and just as we learn painfully that we should stay out of foreign civil wars during the Vietnam era, we got to learn that lesson all over again now, that we're looking at a civil war that we're involved in now over there in Syria, in Iraq, uh, who knows where else, maybe more secretly, in Yemen certainly. Um, and we ought to stay out, because we just make things worse when we get involved in foreigners' civil wars. That's why it's important to look back at what happened in Vietnam, because it's a real lesson for today. Mm.
0: All right, now, so go back to Vietnam then again and the difference, because, you know, it even took, and I've known this forever, but it still took, I I think maybe it was Noam Chomsky or somebody else just... Had it hit me in the head with a hammer to get me to finally really see it as, no, the U.S. invaded Vietnam. They set up a puppet government to, quote-unquote, pretend to invite us, and that was it. They were trying to conquer the south of the country and keep the north out of it, and they it was a pretension that they were there really helping any real side stay independent right. we, from we, the we north.
3: We an artificial nation called South Vietnam. It never really existed, but sure, you know... People, that, there's a saying in the advertising industry, you got to hear something seven times before it sticks in your head. I think in politics, sometimes it's 70 times. And that's why people like you and me got to keep saying these things over and over and over again. You know, that's what we were born for, is to do that. But eventually, people do get the message. And actually, people have been writing about uh, the Islamic State really being waging a civil war against other Muslims. Um But the peace movement has not yet picked up that story. See, most of the time when people write about that, I I did the research here, um, they say, well, we ought to pick one side in this war and make that, you know, support that side, whether it's the Shiites or the Sunnis or the modernizers or the liberals or whatever. Uh, And my point is, no, uh, that as soon as we start picking sides uh, and sending our troops to support one side in a foreign civil war, the history shows we're just going to make things worse. Uh, we're going to get uh, Americans are going to die. But it, it, even worse, I think lots more foreigners are going to die because we intervene. And uh, we've got no plan for victory. We've got no end game here. We don't know where it leads to, except that it's bound to make things worse. And we just got to keep saying that over and over again. And eventually people begin to understand it.
0: Well, it's funny because we just finished talking with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis of the U.S. Army about how that's exactly the case in Afghanistan right now. Is everyone that we helped now and added all these guns and dollars to the situation has distorted the amounts of power that these different factions have. And now it's going to take a lot of patience for it to all sift out, you know? I
3: finished writing this piece a few days ago. It was posted just yesterday. And then I think it was just yesterday, in other words, after the piece was written, New York Times read an article that now the Islamic State is starting to gain support in Afghanistan. So this Muslim civil war, uh, which uh, we know is going on involving the Islamic State in uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Nigeria, Libya, uh, as far away as Indonesia, it's now spreading to Afghanistan. Uh, and so this is just way beyond our ability to control And You know, you go back to Vietnam or you look today, So much of American policy and the mainstream pundits, it's based on the fantasy that we Americans have so much power that we can control what's going on all over the world. You know, the term they like to use is order and stability, right? We're going to bring order and stability. And we're always telling those people how they should behave uh, to be more orderly. Well, it's always a fantasy. And every time we try to act on that fantasy, we just create more chaos. And it uh, going been going on in Afghanistan for years, and it's probably just going to get worse.
0: Yeah, well, now, so go back to, uh, you kind of mentioned there quickly, um, the different aspects of this civil war. Like you said, in Vietnam, it actually was much simpler with the communists in the north, their partisans in the south, um, and the American puppet government there. Uh, a little bit of a Catholic-Buddhist right. split between the sock puppets and, and everybody else. but
3: In Afghanistan. Vietnam, we were dealing with a, a relatively tiny area. We were dealing with, uh, oh, I don't know, a few tens of millions of people. Here, we're dealing with the entire uh, Muslim world, again, what they call Dar al-Islam, which is over a billion people. But it's not just There's
0: Sunni versus Shiites, as you say in the article. Sunni versus There's...
3: Shiites is just one piece of it, because you have Sunni modernizers and Shiite modernizers, Sunni traditionalists, and Shiite traditionalists, and then even within one group, let's say the, the Sunni uh, traditionalists, the very conservative Sunnis, you've got uh, the Islamic State, you've got Al Qaeda, the two of them against each other. Then you've got Saudi Arabia.
0: Oh, we just lost so, your uh, we lost your quality there, Ira.
3: I think the, the Saudi Arabia, which in many ways, in terms of their government, their values, is very similar to the Islamic State and Al Qaeda. But fighting against those. I mean, you start listing out all the different political forces Mm -hmm. there and uh, it's going to take you your full half hour here just to list them all out. Well,
0: but yeah, no, that's part of the fun of it. (laughs) I mean, at least at least till the music uh, is done playing. And we have to take this break, too. You mentioned the, the Sunni Kurds are allied with the Iraqi Shia who are allied. And this is where it really gets to it, who are allied with Iran, with the government in Tehran, who's at a proxy war with the government in Riyadh, which has a lot more to do with what's going on overall than Sunni versus Shia, really. It's right. power and influence that right. they're fighting over. But now hold it, because the music is playing. we got to take this break. But when we get back more about this great article by Ira Churnis, with Ira Churnis, it's at antiwar.com under Tom Engelhart's name here, the peace movement's war story. And we're going to get back to that aspect of it, too. Hey, i I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson & Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. And they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Hey I' Scott Horton, here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson: Freedom and Security: The Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms." This is the definitive, principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment, and the right to keep and bear arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I'm very happy to be talking again with Ira Chernis. And uh, he's written this piece for TomDispatch.com and AntiWar.com. I really hope you'll read it. It's really insightful, man. And, um... It's uh, it's really important. And now the thing of it is, Ira, is actually we do have lots of time. We still got like 10 minutes. So, um, And I think it's really important for illustrating the real point that you're getting to about the narrative, which we can get to here in a few. But the, the thing about all of the various different aspects of basically the entire breakdown of the previous order in the Middle East and and how very complicated it is, uh, because I think that, that – Really is a great part of the narrative too that it's you know the, you could end with, and you tell me where we're supposed to, you know, tie this all up neat and clean. You know,
3: yeah, I want to say it's not just the Middle East. I mean, we're talking about Muslims around the world, and um, and even here in the United States, of course, there's there's some tension. I mean, look, there's a tiny, tiny, tiny number of Muslims here in the United States who have any interest in supporting the Islamic State. The problem is that the Islamic State thinks that by turning Americans, non-Muslim Americans, against them, that they can recruit more Muslims here in the U.S. But they're not doing very well, let's face it. They're, they're getting uh, hardly any recruits here in the U.S. But what they want to do is drive a wedge between Muslims and the rest of us here in the U.S. That's why they would like to provoke attacks, like the one in San Bernardino. Right? They're not about attacking us directly, right? It's a recruiting device. I mean, it's kind of perverse. I'm certainly not in favor of it. But I think it's really important to understand it, that they're trying to use our fear as a tool so that they can recruit more Muslims to their side, the Islamic State side, in this Muslim civil war. We're just pawns. We're just bystanders. We're not the target, really, uh, of their goal or their strategy. They're using us. The, the, The tragedy is that it's working. To some extent, that they're creating this fear and they're creating this anti-Muslim backlash, which is exactly what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, every time that we Americans uh, say, "Oh, we got to spend more money," as I see the Pentagon wants to do now um, to, to fight against the Islamic State, we're giving them exactly what they want. We're uh, helping them, really, uh, even though we think they're fight. We're fighting them. The only way we can really help ourselves is to stop getting involved in that civil war at all bring our troops home bring our bombers home and take care of business at home
0: yeah well you know what's funny about all this too to me anyway is the counterfactual and i guess especially just because the coincidence of it all taking you know beginning around the millennium and everything and the symbolism of just the entire 21st century and and how different things could have been and you know i'm sure this probably isn't exactly where you're coming from ira but from my view it's always been would have harry brown the libertarian had won in 2000 instead of bush and probably 9-11 yeah. wouldn't have happened at all but so i know what other- he would have done in response and because so he told me is that he would
3: Nader the green party had won in 2000 but well, yeah <laughs>
0: same same difference but you know and harry brown told me himself what he would have done was he would authorize the most limited mark and reprisal mission to kill bin laden or capture bin laden and put him on trial and then he would have given his statue of liberty speech to the world all day every day from now on while he dismantled nato brought the troops home from their empire bases around the world and abolished the empire but he would have verbally beat planet earth over the head with the scottish enlightenment every day for eight years and and he he just would have been telling them that you know listen the future is freedom and, and and meant it, right? Not in a Paul Wolfowitz way where he's going to kill you all in the name of it, but no, really, and demonstrate it. This, this is what it's like to have a country with a Bill of Rights and, and really go with it and, and you know, sure. really abide by it. And and then this is what they've done instead is turn the entire Middle East, in a, as, as Michael Scheuer put it, I'm sorry I'm going on so long, but as Michael Scheuer put it, that they are completing the radicalization of the Muslim world that Osama bin Laden had been utterly failing to accomplish himself. The but USA first, did it Osama, all for him.
3: This was Osama bin Laden's original strategy, was to antagonize uh, of the United States and, and NATO into attacking uh, and, and to mobilizing ourselves around this narrative of, oh, Al-Qaeda's the great enemy. That's exactly what Al-Qaeda wanted, and now the Islamic State is doing the same thing. But I don't think we have to dwell so much on the mistakes of the past. I think what we've got to think about is how much better we can do in the future. And one of the points I'm making in this article is that the peace movement has not been very successful in recent years. And I think that's because the peace movement spends all its time criticizing what the government is doing, what the mainstream media are doing. The peace movement is not offering its own story, its own Uh, constructive view of what's going on and that's why I think that this uh, uh, narrative of the Muslim Civil War saying this is a Muslim Civil War they're not out to get us, they're out to get each other, that's uh, something that the peace movement can contribute to the uh, overall conversation in this country and I think it could be a way that the peace movement can rebuild itself Uh, every movement needs a strong positive narrative to describe from its own point of view what's going on. The peace movement hasn't been doing that lately, and I think it's time to start. And it's a good thing to say that this is a place where um, libertarians like yourself and more left-leaning people like me, uh, we can reach across the aisle and work together on this issue.
0: And then as you're trying to teach us here before about Vietnam is this is a big part of what changed the the uh, support for the Vietnam War was the changing of the narrative and the coming around, just like happened to you personally, the coming around of the American people to seeing the war different rather than we're sticking up for, you know, this group or whatever. That Yeah, one, was... of,
3: one of the things I, I learned is, is when I uh, switched my story of the Vietnam War is that your political views do the policies you support depend on the story that you tell because the story is the way you describe the world and that's what determines how you're going to act in the world is the way you describe the world, the way you interpret the world and that's always been a a crucial role for for peace movement, peace activists is to help Americans see the world differently talk about the world differently Mm -hmm. and uh, in this particular case, that's why I keep coming back to this, if we describe what the Islamic State is about is that they're one faction in this very complicated Muslim civil war, as soon as you see it that way, everything looks different. And then you realize how self-defeating our military involvement over there is.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and of course, you know, yeah, if you want, um, if if supposedly like the war party uh, has it, that the enemy is you know, fundamentalist and radicalist Islam itself, well, the number one best way to marginalize them is to create real conditions of peace and stability by butting out, letting these situations, as bad as they are, even in some cases, get solved as quickly as possible so that people aren't so desperate that all they have left is Allah and a suicide belt. At the very
3: least, it's the way to keep the American people safe. And I think, you know, the bottom line here is that, as you know, what most Americans want is just to save American lives. It's a sad thing, in a sense, but most Americans don't care as much about lives of people in other countries. Well, our main goal as a, as a people, our political goal, is to save American lives. And the longer we're fighting over there, the, more, the easier it's going to be for them to radicalize tiny numbers of Muslims here, and you're going to see more of these San Bernardinos. If we want to protect American lives, the best thing we can do Out of their civil war uh, to say it's a tragedy but it's not our job to solve all the evils of the world we're not Superman flying around uh, fixing or righting all the wrongs in the world Uh, I think most Americans believe that it's our job to keep Americans safe and uh, that's what the peace movement has uh, really been best at is uh, helping Americans understand the world in a way that protects American lives
0: yeah well and it's unfortunate too that we have to probably. You're right. Spin it in such a selfish way, and never mind the fact that it's American foreign policy that's made things as horrible as it is under Bush and under Obama that have just escalated and escalated so many of these different civil wars that you talk about here. Um, but really, you're right. I mean, appealing to their basic selfishness is probably the best hope we got as far uh, as it goes. It's going to be
3: practical about it. Uh, I would love to see us care more about lives all over the world in a genuinely humanitarian way, but uh, to to this idea of humanitarian uh, bomb dropping and humanitarian drones, and, you know, it's just a total contradiction. And uh, so if if the best we can do is to uh, just focus on protecting American lives, well, maybe right now that's the best we can do.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm bitterly accepting, I guess, the lessons – Um, from the political campaigns that slogans and impressions and analogies and metaphors and parables and stuff, that's the best you could ever do. You can't teach nobody nothing. They don't want to learn things. And that maybe if you just give them the impression, like you're saying, it's somebody else's fight, they could understand that.
3: People do learn things. and You can't take the slogans and the metaphors and the stories, I would say the myths, out of politics. That's always going to be a part of politics. And the smart thing is to use uh, those tools effectively.
0: Right. All right. Well, listen, I really appreciate your article, and I really appreciate your time again on the show, Ira. Thanks.
3: Okay. Always nice talking to you. Thanks a lot.
0: All right, y'all. That is Ira Chernis, and again, he is a professor of religious studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. Nice place, man. And uh, he's the author of the online Mythic America Essays. His blog is mythicamerica.us. He's at tomdispatch.com and antiwar.com with this one, The Peace Movement's War Story. Back in one sec with John Pfeffer. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at darrenscoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. Darrenscoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. Darrenscoffee.com. So you're a libertarian, and you don't believe the
2: propaganda about government awesomeness you were subjected to in fourth grade. You want real history and economics. Well, learn in your car from professors you can trust with Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. And if you join through the Liberty Classroom link at scotthorton.org, we'll make a donation to support The Scott Horton Show. Liberty Classroom, the history and economics they didn't teach you.
0: All right, y'all welcome to the show. Back to it, I mean to say. Oops. I'm Scott Horton, it's my show, the Scott Horton Show. And next up, it's our friend John Pfeffer. This is a little bit along the same lines of our previous interview, but just a little bit. Uh, the article is Life in the Gray Zone. And, uh, of course, it's at foreignpolicyinfocus, fpif.org, as well as antiwar.com. Welcome back to the show. John, how are you?
4: Fine. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Uh, very happy to have you back here. And so um, the gray zone, this whole thing was mentioned by our previous guest, Ira Chernus, about how ISIS has a strategy of trying to divide the American people from the Muslims among us. Could you please elaborate, sir?
4: Sure. Well, uh, you know, ISIS basically has launched uh, a war not so much against us, uh, i.e. the West, Uh, the war is largely uh, being waged against fellow Muslims Um, and that's largely because of where ISIS is located, it's located in the Middle East, it's not located in Brooklyn so much or or San Francisco Uh, and it is a war basically for the hearts and minds of Muslims and ISIS has its own conception of what Islam should be. It's a basically a 6th century AD conception of Islam, and it believes that any Muslim that does not basically swear allegiance to the caliphate is uh, a Muslim that has uh, stood against ISIS. In other words, ISIS has the same kind of philosophy as George W. Bush had, and that is you're either with us or against us. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's against us, anybody who's against the caliphate is basically living in what they call the gray zone. And the gray zone is basically Muslims living in Europe uh, who have you know, decided to live in Europe as Europeans, or it could be Muslims living throughout the Middle East who have absolutely no intention of either fighting for or swearing allegiance to the caliphate. But it, of course, includes a wide range of non-Muslims, uh, Christians, Jews, anybody, frankly, who doesn't subscribe to uh, ISIS's philosophy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and then so it's a PR battle as to who's betraying Islam, the crazy headchoppers or the people who would dare to commit the sin to live a bunch among a bunch of post-Christians in France.
4: That's correct. And, you know, this is in some sense, it's a continuation of the struggle that Al Qaeda um, put forward back in uh, the 90s and in the 2000s. Uh, it's a little bit more extreme. Uh, Al Qaeda and ISIS don't really get along. Uh, but they both had this conception that uh, their brand of Islam would gradually take over the Islamic world. And once that took place and perhaps they would have enough strength uh, to take on the West um, but, you know, this this is a a philosophy that is accepted by a minuscule number of Muslims in the world, and we're talking about 1.2, 1.3 billion people in the world, and we're only talking about, you know, uh, tens of thousands of adherents of ISIS.
0: Right. Well, and, and boy, there's a part of the narrative that never gets uh, explained very thoroughly. And thanks for mentioning that. And then, but so I wonder, um, is, has, uh, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the so-called uh, self-declared Caliph Ibrahim there. Has he hired John Kerry to be his PR man? Because uh, <laughs> I saw the Secretary of State was saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, the Islamic State, they're infidels. Or what was the quote? I'm getting the quote wrong. I'm sorry. I had it here somewhere, though, where, yeah, no, apostates. He calls uh. the Islamic a white uh, Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Lutheran from the northwest of the middle part of North America. Uh, says that uh, Baghdadi and his men are apostates. And I'm thinking that, come on, they must have paid him <laughs> off to say that, right?
4: <laughs> well, it, that is valuable recruitment material, I'm sure, for ISIS, as is most of the statements by Donald Trump, uh, the other kind of uh, candidates in this uh, election year, all of whom kind of feed ISIS, you know, lines, whether it's their Islamophobia in the case of, Donald Trump saying that there should be no Muslims uh, admitted into the United States or Ben Carson saying that there should be no Muslim president. All of this for ISIS confirms the notion that there is no place for Muslims in the West. In other words, there is frankly no uh, viable gray zone uh, that Muslims really should make a choice between us, the caliphate and them who will never accept Muslims. And, You know, this polarization, of course, is not just taking place in the United States, it's taking place throughout the world, perhaps most vividly, most disturbingly in Europe, where, uh, the kind of far right wing, the most extreme, uh, versions of Donald Trump, if you will, in Europe, have indulged in the same kind of Islamophobia, basically saying there's no room in Europe for Muslims, even though Muslims have lived in Europe for hundreds of years, and in the case of the Balkans, for a thousand years or so.
0: And now, um, it's true too, isn't it, that um, in Europe, by and large, Muslims are much more alienated from society than they are here, because I guess mostly most Muslim Americans are recent arrivals and they tend to be from the upper classes of the countries that they fled from rather than tired, poor, huddled masses. They all have Ph.D.s and big houses.
4: Yes. I mean, there is a, a definite socioeconomic difference between Muslims in the United States and Muslims in Europe. And that means that essentially Muslims in, Muslims in Europe uh, suffer from a double stigma. They are they're both they're treated
0: like Mexicans. Precisely. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
4: um, and, you know, at one point for Europe, that was that was fine. I mean, qu- uh, Europe needed, quote unquote, their Mexicans. They needed uh, migrant labor throughout the 1960s and 1970s when Europe, European economies were growing. And increasingly, Europeans, indigenous Europeans were not interested in taking the dirty, dangerous jobs. And so they brought in folks from Turkey, from North Africa, and so forth. Um, uh, but uh, that is not, not really the case any longer, European economies largely are stagnant, large unemployment rates, and so the folks that had previously been uh, absolutely needed for economic growth are seen as, uh, as competitors in the economic marketplace.
3: Yeah.
0: And, you know, I'm sorry, I actually don't really remember specifically off the top of my head, but I'd be willing to bet 100 bucks that you and I have talked about in, say, 2011, 2012, that uh, me saying something to you like, geez, John, doesn't it seem dangerous for America and its NATO and GCC allies to be supporting a bunch of suicide bomber jihadists against Assad in Syria? And I'm pretty sure you would have said something like, yeah, you know, this could be problematic <laughs> for the future, something like that. I mean, they yeah. this is the kind of fire they're, they're playing with magnesium, which burns really hot.
4: Right. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. And, you know, the United States made a decision a long time ago, in the 1940s, actually, to make a strong alliance with the House of Saud in, in Saudi Arabia. And, uh, throughout the Cold War, there was a perception that, uh, our, Our religious allies in Saudi Arabia and throughout the Middle East were useful in the fight against communism, uh, and the fight against nationalism. Um, and of course those roosters or those chickens have come home to roost. And, uh, but the United States has not severed its relationship with Saudi Arabia. It's, it's, and, and you can even see this in, in the, uh, in the current elections. I mean, even Bernie Sanders, unbelievably, would say, that the United States has to get Saudi Arabia to put more boots on the ground against ISIS, uh, against the Islamic State, without realizing, in some sense, that there's a, a strong ideological affinity between Saudi Arabia and ISIS, even if, uh, at a formal rhetorical level, the, the Saudi government is not going to say that it supports ISIS. Right.
0: And meanwhile, uh, of course, the U.S. Army is Saudi's foreign legion. They don't have their own. Uh, well, the Saudi—actually,
4: this, this is a, a very disturbing— development, and that is that the Saudi uh, government has decided that, particularly after the nuclear agreement between the United States and Iran, that the Saudi Saudi, uh, military has to uh, import even more weapons than it has been importing, many of which come from the United States. So the Saudi government is expecting a major increase in its military uh, fighting capability. But they've
0: got no field army, no real one, just internal gestapo forces right and i'm sorry because now we're out of time for this segment that's the question when we get back uh, from this break with the great john pfeffer he's at fpif foreign policy in focus great stable of writers over there and more about the gray zone after this
1: superior blends of premium coffee roasted fresh in zionsville indiana Darren's coffee satisfies the casual and the connoisseur Scott Horton Show listeners, visit Darren'sCoffee.com and use the coupon code Scott at checkout for free shipping. Darren'scoffee.com. Because everyone deserves to drink great coffee.
0: Hey, I'll Scott here. If you've got a band, a business, a cause, or campaign, and you need stickers to help promote, check out the bumpersticker.com at the bumpersticker.com. They digitally print with solvent ink so you get the photo quality results of digital with the strength and durability of old-style screen printing. I'm sure glad I sold the BumperSticker.com to Rick back when. He's made a hell of a great company out of it, and there are thousands of satisfied customers who agree with me, too. Let the BumperSticker.com help you get the word out. That's the BumperSticker.com at the BumperSticker.com. All right, you guys, welcome back. Well, we've got to mention this in a minute, I guess. Obama right now is giving his speech at a mosque on sort of, kind of, the same subject we're discussing here, the so-called gray zone, where, you know, civilization, where people can get along despite the fact that they have different beliefs, uh, that is the enemy of the war party on our side and the war party on their side, too. But uh, where we left off, uh, I'm sorry, it was the narrower question of Sanders' claim that, yeah, we got to get the Saudis' field army to go invade Iraqi sunni stand for us. and uh, But then I was thinking, you know what, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm overstating... The case that they don't really have an army capable of a foreign adventure, uh, only putting down domestic dissent. But I guess that's just what I'd always heard, John. Oh, and I'm sorry, I'm talking with John Pfeffer from Foreign Policy and Focus about it all. Uh, is that right, John? About uh, Saudi's field army or not? Have we lost audio? Can you hear me? Are you there? I think John can't hear me, guys. Uh, we're still connected. Are you there? Are you there? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? We're talking. Well, I don't know. It could be a problem on my end, but I don't think so. Let me see here. Seems like everybody else can hear me. Can't hear me. Well, let's call back then. Uh, what? Okay, he's online. I'll try to call him back and see what happens. Hey, it's live radio. These things happen, man. No big, no big deal. Uh, can you hear me now, John? Oh, now I can't hear you. I can see you, but I can't hear you. Uh, so we've got a problematic problem of some kind. Maybe third time will be a charm here. All right. Again, it's live radio. These things happen. No big deal. He's calling back. At least we don't have to mess with dialing phone numbers here. Hey, all right. No, I still can't hear you. Uh, oh, well. You know what? I have your phone number. I'm going to hit redial on it in just a sec. All right, we'll get them on here, guys. Yeah, these things happen, man. Hello? Hey, John, how are you? i <laughs> You know, uh, I think that uh, Microsoft is in on it with the NSA. Oh, wait, I know that for a fact. That must be what happened to our uh, show. Nah, probably not. Uh, always Skype problems. Hey, listen, so I'm sorry. Where we left off, we were talking about whether or not uh, Saudi has a field army that they could send to Iraq to rouse the Islamic State out of Fallujah and Mosul. And you were going right. to say before the music there.
5: I mean, they have they have some army. It's not, not extensive, but, you know, uh, they have a pretty uh, extensive air force, and they are bulking up. I mean, Saudi Arabia is one of the leading arms importers in the world, um, and it, it brings in some of the heaviest, m- heaviest guns from the United States. And so they are, even though they are, their budget has been hit hard by the declining price of, of oil internationally, they are still committing huge resources to their military.
0: Well, yeah, Lord knows they're uh, raining hell down on the poor Yemenis all day, every day. That's correct. No question about that. All right. Uh, and with plenty of help from the U.S., by the way. Um, all right, but now, so, yeah, back to the narrative here. We, we have a real problem, I think, that the best progress anyone ever made was Ron Paul back in 2007 when he had his big fight with Rudy Giuliani, and he said, no, wait, the 90s existed. And uh, it was our intervention over there bombing Iraq for 10 years from bases in Saudi. That's what provoked the terrorist war against us. And we could just call it off and they'll dry up and go away and leave us alone. But, man, no one on that level is making that kind of argument. I and mean, it just has no traction whatsoever on the national level. It, the damn debate is dominated by Ted Cruz, if not anybody else. I can't think of who does a better job of making it plain that the enemy is radical Islam, which could mean... One man in every neighborhood, everywhere from Morocco to the Philippines, right?
5: Yeah, and, you know, it it has had an impact on American public opinion. You know, more than half of Americans believe that they or their family will uh, be affected by a terrorist attack in the next few years. Uh, even though the likelihood of being involved in a, a terrorist attack at this point, especially if you 're in the United States, is uh, comparable or even less likely than being hit by lightning, so you know this this is how the the rhetoric has translated into public opinion, and then public opinion uh, reinforces the candidate 's position kind of uh, feedback loop yeah. and you 're right there is really nobody. Uh, Including Bernie Sanders, who some have put forward as kind of a peace alternative, um, no one is is talking about the transformation of the national security complex. Uh, you know, at the moment, and I, it, it's hard for me to say this, but you know, our current president has a better foreign policy than you know the the uh, what we have on offer, frankly, from most of the uh, candidates, and that it means that at least he's engaged in some diplomatic overtures. The candidates, you know, especially on on the right wing side, have all rejected every diplomatic overture that the administration's made. They promised to rip up the Iran agreement. They want to sever relations with Cuba, and they want to bomb ISIS until the sand glows radioactively.
0: Yeah, it's, it is amazing, isn't it? With all of the horrible stuff that Obama has done, the regime change in the half in Libya and Syria and the Dublin down to the whole disastrous surge in Afghanistan, and all the drone wars across the whole damn world, and yet every single other alternative that we have to choose from is avowedly worse than him from the get-go. Great. Right.
5: Yeah, and, you know, so there is, there is some marginal difference uh, in the foreign policies of the candidates who are running, but there's no fundamental difference with, the status quo in in a positive way. And the status quo is, I wrote something today on this, uh, the status quo is that uh, essentially America is an aggressive actor in the world and, and no one challenges that narrative. And it's not surprising that we are getting not just the leadership That we deserve, which is the common expression, but we're getting the leadership that our foreign policy deserves. Our foreign policy is aggressive, hard hearted and parochial. And so are our candidates and most likely our next president will be as well.
0: Yeah. All right. Now, you have a great little bit about Gaza in here, too. And, uh, of course, we all know from reading Robert Dreyfus in his great book Devil's Game, Andrew Higgins, I believe it is, at the Wall Street Journal and Richard Sale at UPI, all about how Israel uh, and their intelligence agency Mossad helped to create Hamas in the first place to create a right-wing religious alternative to the PLO. But now it seems like... Uh, Perhaps Netanyahu would prefer that Islamic State or al-Qaeda types uh, be able to get away with more murder in the Gaza Strip so that he can pretend that all Gazans are a bunch of Baghdadiists.
5: That's correct. I mean, this is a terrible irony because, of course, uh, the Islamic State is arrayed against Hamas, even though plenty of people, I imagine, in the United States would not see much daylight between the two organizations. But Hamas is after, you know, a pretty standard... Set of goals for a liberation movement, that is, a separate state um, and some political entity. Whereas ISIS is not interested in that. It's not interested in these kind of uh, territorial uh, ambitions. It wants to establish a caliphate uh, globally. And so within Gaza, there is a current fight going on between Hamas and adherents of the Islamic State. Now, uh, ordinarily, a sensible policy coming out of a a neighboring government like Israel would say, well, God, we don't want ISIS on our border, so let's support Hamas. We don't like Hamas very much, but they are the devil we know versus the devil we don't know. And we can at least negotiate with Hamas, and ISIS is, of course, not interested in negotiations at all with anybody. But that's not, I think, the perspective coming from Netanyahu, because if ISIS were to take over in Gaza, it would eliminate Hamas, which Netanyahu doesn't like very much anyway, and then if Israel were to unleash another barrage of uh, aerial bombing, the world wouldn't say, oh my God, don't do this, B.B., this is is making us uncomfortable because there are human rights violations, etc., war crimes possibly. No, the international community would say, thank you very much, Netanyahu, for doing this because you're fighting against the Islamic State. So I think that is the calculation in Netanyahu's mind at the moment
0: bastard and we're still talking about a region here, this tiny little Gaza strip prison where is it not the case that a majority of the population are minors they're actually not minors they're majors, the people under eighteen there
5: yeah well that's because so many people are trying to get out of of Gaza, so anybody who you know comes of age is looking for a job somewhere else or education somewhere else I mean some people return obviously to Gaza, but you know there's so few jobs, so few opportunities it's just not a functioning uh, Uh, economy at the moment.
0: All right. Well, thanks very much again, uh, John, for coming back on the show. really appreciate all your work, of course, as always.
5: Thank you very much for having me on again.
0: All right, y'all. That is the great John Pfeffer. He is the Director of Foreign Policy in Focus at FPIF.org, FPIF.org. And that's it for today. Thanks, y'all, for listening to me. See you tomorrow. ScottHorton.org.